Thank you for tuning in to Trinity Baptist Temple's podcast. I'm Pastor Kyle Dinsmore, and I pray today's sermon is a blessing to you as you continue to seek the Lord and follow His will for your life. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact us. God bless you. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We've been on this journey with Jesus for several uh, months now, and last week some important reminders about prayer. And uh, I just want to again touch on those three points that we saw. The first point last week was persistent prayer pays off. Um, and if you remember, we, we, we saw this, that our persistence in prayer isn't about God's unwillingness to hear or unwillingness to answer. Our persistence in prayer is about us. Uh, God wants us to continually come to Him. Not because he's wanting us to see how many times, want to see how many times we're going to come to him or ask the same thing or, or anything like that. It's about the relationship that we have with him. He wants us to absolutely 100% trust him. And so our persistence in our prayer shows God and demonstrates, and, and again, it's for our benefit, our trust and complete reliance in God. So it always pays off to be persistent in prayer. Number two was pious prayer is pointless. For us to go to God and say, God, you know, you, you got somebody good when you got me, or uh, I'm living my life right, and so God should answer this prayer. God, you need to answer this prayer because I'm doing everything right. I'm doing everything that nobody else is doing. Again, a pious prayer, just like we saw with the Pharisee, is pointless. It falls flat on the ground. How, whatever illustration you want to use, it hits the ceiling, falls right back down. Uh, it's a pointless prayer. And then the third thing is this, passionate prayer prompts God. Similar to persistent prayer, uh, when we continually come to God and we're pouring out our hearts to God and say, you know, Lord, please move in this area. God, please help these people. God, please heal this person. And we're passionate about that, pouring out our heart. It prompts God. It moves the hand of God. And we saw the different illustrations throughout Scripture, whether it was Abraham saying, God, if there's 50 righteous people in the city. Uh, Moses, God, please don't destroy your people who you just delivered out of Egypt. Or, or if it, even if it was Jesus uh, in John chapter 17 when he's praying passionately, for his followers to be one, even for us, those who would believe on the word of those who, who are with him then, again, passionate prayer prompts the hand of God. So again, this re reminder of the importance of prayer is vital. I don't, I don't think there's any greater example of how important prayer is than what we saw in Jesus. Jesus himself, God clothed in flesh, coming to this earth, and again, finding time and making time uh, to set aside to be alone with God. And again, this, this, this is a perfect illustration uh, of someone uh, that we need to look at. Again, living a, a life in the flesh, living a perfect life in the flesh, being the perfect sacrifice, and then showing us uh, how important that persistent, passionate prayer is, is, is again, just perfect in Christ. And so this week, we move forward, going to continue to see uh, some teachings about the kingdom, who can enter, who can't enter, and um, see what God has for us. So let's pray, and we'll get into this. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for what we've already experienced in the, in the music uh, part of this service. We thank you for um, just the confidence that we can have in you, that even if things don't go the way that we want them to go, uh, our hope remains in you alone. And so, Lord, I, I pray that with everything that we're dealing with in our lives, there's so many different people in this room, so many different families represented and I know that each person in, in, in each family is probably going through something of some, some sort of trial. Uh, 
uh, you're facing some sort of difficulty. And so, Lord, tonight or this morning, we, we ask that you would uh, just move in a, in a special way uh, in, in each of the lives, those of us who are struggling. Um, Lord, it, whether it's a burden for those in Houston, whether it's a, a physical uh, disease, whether it's a struggle with a job or at home, um, whatever it is, God, we, uh, we ask you to move and uh, just have your way in, in each of these situations. Lord, we do pray for those in Houston. We ask that you would uh, give wisdom to uh, the different organizations that are organizing uh, relief efforts, uh, whether it's the Salvation Army or uh, even a church or a fellowship. Uh, God, just give wisdom to those leaders on how to best minister and, and to, uh, to serve those that are in need to help repair and restore uh, homes and lives and, and ultimately the, the, the towns and cities affected. Lord, help us as a church uh, to do, even if it's just a small part, uh, to, to help those in need. Uh, take what little we may give or, or, or whatever we may do and just multiply it, God, and be a great blessing to those uh, that are in need. And um, Lord, we pray you move this morning in this message. Uh, I just want to be a vessel, Lord, that you use to speak what needs to be spoken for all of us. Uh, God, that we would hear your word and we'd receive it and we'd apply it in our lives. And even if we need to share it with someone else, God, that we would do that. Uh, but just have your way in this service. Lord, I also pray if there's someone that's lost, they've never surrendered their life to you, they'll see the importance uh, of entering to the kingdom of God, the only way that we can enter into your kingdom. And not only that, but all the blessings that come along with being a part of your kingdom. Um, and Lord, that, again, those that are lost would be saved. And we'll praise you for that. Lord, we ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 18, we're going to pick up in verse 15. It says, And they brought, also, uh, brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily, truly I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Now, first of all, it's very, let's make this clear. It doesn't mean that you have to get saved when you're a kid in order to go to heaven. He's not saying that. You have to enter the kingdom of God as a, as a child, and, and if you don't, you can't get it. He's not saying that at all. But number one in your notes is this. This is what he is saying, that you can't enter God's kingdom without childlike faith or childlike humbleness or humility. Uh, it's impossible to enter the kingdom of God without the kind of faith that a child has or even an infant has. And the same humility or humbleness that a child has or an infant has uh, is, is what's needed as well. But what is that? What, what, is, a, what is childlike faith? What does childlike uh, humility or humbleness look like? Because some of you may have kids who say, well, I, I've got kids and they're not humble at all. <laughs> you know, I've got kids and they have no humility at all. I, um, so I, I don't know what this is talking about. What is that? Uh, first of all, I, I want to establish something uh, from man's perspective. Man's perspective on what greatness uh, was then still remains now. And here's what it is. Man's perspective says greatness or the way up is up. So to, to get more, uh, you have to be more. To, to go up, you have to move up. You have to make yourself something. Uh, matter of fact, in, in job interviews, uh, they, they tell you that you've got to sell yourself right? They, they, you've got to go in there and you've got to present something that that company, that organization wants. And so you've got to make yourself sound really good and oftentimes maybe better than we are. 
Um, but that's, that's man's way. Man's perspective is the way up is up. Work up, you know, more of up, whether it's money, friends, status, whatever. But Jesus, his teachings is this, the way up is down. See, when he's talking about a child or childlike faith, childlike humbleness and humility, he's specifically talking about a little child and even more specifically an infant. An infant is helpless in himself. An infant can't feed himself, can't dress himself, can't, can't take care of itself at all. It's completely dependent, completely reliant, completely trusting. All of those things an infant is on its caretaker. Completely dependent. So far in our study, we've seen quite a bit about pride and humility. And even last week saw it specifically when it comes down to praying. But also when it comes to relating to God, this, this idea of pride and humility. And this section that we see that Jesus is teaching on carries over from that, that, that idea of the Pharisee's prayer versus the publican's prayer. The difference between pride and humility. See, God rejects the, the, the proud, he rejects the prideful, and he gives grace to the humble. That's what James chapter 4, verse 6 says. An infant is void of pride. An infant is void of arrogance. An infant is void even of ambition in terms of worldly existence. You say, what, what does that mean? That means that an infant may have ambition when it comes to eating, right? I mean, all you got to do is put a bottle sometimes in front of an infant, and they'll start crying. They have ambition when it comes to that. But in worldly terms, about their self, their person, their makeup, their, their desires, what they want to do, what, others, what other people think about them, they don't have that. They innately have this dependence and this teachability uh, when they're growing up. And so with that, we have to understand what God is saying in this relationship. To enter the kingdom of God, you have to be like an infant in your reliance, in your humility, in your humbleness. That's how you have to be. Because there's a couple things that we know from Scripture. First of all, faith is what pleases God. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that. So without that dependence, without that reliance, without that absolute, complete surrender to God, we can't even please God. So faith is what pleases God. But faith also is what gives us entrance into the kingdom of God. Clearly, Scripture says this over and over and over. You can't enter the kingdom of God without trust in Jesus Christ alone. But humility is also that other slice of the pie concerning a little infant or a little child. Humbleness or humility is what God rewards. Humbleness and humility is what God responds to. The Bible says that he exalts those that humble themselves. And he brings those low that exalt themselves. And so again, this is vital for us to understand. What the disciples saw as a nuisance, Jesus saw as a great teaching illustration. He saw an opportunity to teach the importance of faith and humility. I also want to remind you of some of the terms that he's referred to his people as. He's referred to his people in his teachings as little ones and babes and children. And I think it's interesting that what happens sometimes, even with grown men, whenever someone gets saved, when they truly get saved. And, and it's not every single time, and it's not a requirement to say, well, so if, if someone doesn't do this, it means that they didn't get saved, truly get saved. No, I'm not saying that at all. But what we see often, even as I said, in, in grown adults, is when someone surrenders their life and they're completely humbled and, uh, and having humility before God, see even grown men 
break down and sob like little children when they give their life to the Lord. That faith and that humility, that, that humbleness, finally forgiven of the Father, finally accepted into his family, completely, again, humbled in his presence. Remember this, the idea of works-based salvation is completely opposite of what Scripture teaches salvation is, which is grace-based salvation. And so we're not talking about that at all, because works-based salvation is centered on I. Works-based salvation is centered on me, what I've done, what I do, and grace-based is centered on Christ, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. So why do you bring that up? Because works-based salvation is based off of pride. Grace-based salvation is based off of humility. So Jesus said you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you enter with the characteristics that an infant has. Faith and humbleness, humility. And so the next thing that we see in his teaching is probably the ideal situation. Matter of fact, I wish every time that I was witnessing to somebody, this is what happened. I wish this is how receptive they were, or these are the questions they have. So look back in our text and see what happens. The ideal situation, seemingly, of what it would be to lead someone to the, to the Lord. Verse 18, a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So again, from the start, this seems like a perfect scenario. I, I don't know if any of you have had this uh, happen to you. Someone asks you this question, hey, what do I need to do to be saved? Just like the Philippian jailer, uh, whenever the earthquake happened and, and uh, the jails came open and, and he was fearing his life, he asked Peter and Paul, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Not Peter and Paul. Not Peter and Paul in, in that jail. He asked those disciples in that jail, what must I do to be saved? This rich young ruler asked him, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But look on, seemingly willing, seemingly humble to receive this, Jesus answered, uh, Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. Very clearly marking himself or setting himself aside as God in this person's eyes, in this rich young ruler's eyes. He called him good. He says, hey, you, why are you calling me good? There's only one that's good and it's God. There's no one on earth that's good, only God. That's also important to know going into this next set of uh, discourse that we see, verse 20. He says, Thou knowest the commandments. You know what the commandments are. You're raised a Jew. You're raised a Hebrew. You know exactly what the Scripture says that you need to do to inherit eternal life. And so he begins to name a few. He says this, Thou uh, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and mother. And we know that's not the, all of the Ten Commandments, but those are the main uh, relational uh, situations or relational commands that we have in the Ten Commandments. And so look what happens. And he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. Now, what seemed to be a, a, a humble and uh, a man full of humility asking the question, good master, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life, turns into something where he has said that he's kept every single one of the relational commands in the Ten Commandments, which Jesus came on the scene and pretty much changed all of that uh, when he began to explain to them what the intent of the law was, not just the letter of the law. But this man says, I, I've kept all of that. I, I'm the perfect citizen. I, I, I take care of all of my relationships. I, I never have a bad interaction, wrong thought. I've, I, I've never offended God's law in any area 
of that part of the law. I, I am blameless. He says, all of these have I kept since I was a young kid. What else do you have? And when Jesus heard these things in verse 22, he said unto him, Yet thou lackest one thing. Now Jesus knew this man's heart. First of all, he just said that. You lack one thing. You, you just admitted to me that you've, you've, you've kept every single command that, that, that has to do with the relationship with other people. But I, I know something's wrong. Other than the fact that Jesus knew he didn't keep all of those commands from the, the time he was a young person up. He says, okay, you're lacking one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. The reason why I mentioned work salvation or works-based salvation versus grace-based salvation a while ago is because what Jesus was coming from and what he was going to in this situation. Jesus wasn't telling this man, okay, look, what you need to do is keep the other commandments. You need to... Um, Keep all these other things and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then you can, then you can uh, go to heaven. That's not what he was saying. He was not talking about works-based salvation. So what was he doing? Jesus was using the law to point out this man's sin. He was using the word of God. Which he was the word of God incarnate. But he was using the written word to reveal that this man indeed was a sinner, offender of the law. Remember this, if someone can't see that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, they can't be saved. If someone thinks that they're already good enough, or if, they, if they've been to church enough, or if they know enough of the religious lingo, or they know enough of the, the, the church, uh, churchianity that's prevalent today, they, they know the scriptures, they know all those things, if someone has all those things, but they have never truly surrendered their life, never turned their back on sin, surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, if that's not been the case, they can't see that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. They, they can't be saved. And again, the Bible says that. And the law shows us that. Matter of fact, Paul said that in Romans chapter 7. And look at what it says in verse 7. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law sin? He says, God forbid. May it never be. Nay, he says, I had not known sin but by the law. Because I, I wouldn't have known lust except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. So again, it wasn't until Paul had the law read to him or, or he, he read it himself, heard the law, the law hit his heart. He wouldn't have known what sin is. The same thing for us today. Many times when, when, I'm, when I am witnessing to someone, I, I do use that. I do use the, the word of God uh, as far as the law goes to show them that and to relate that we're all offenders of, the, of God's law. But that's what the law's purpose is. Jesus was simply showing that while this man thought he was good, and by man's standards, he probably was good. I mean, he was successful. He seemingly was a good citizen. He tried to take care of all of the relationships that he had on this earth. Jesus was exposing he actually had another little G, God, in his life. The last part of the Ten Commandments, he actually didn't take care of. See, the, the whole intent of, of the last part of the Ten Commandments was to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what Jesus came on the scene to say. To love your neighbor as yourself. This man actually didn't love his neighbor as much as he thought, or as much as that he professed he did. 
So, hey, don't kill, steal, commit adultery, don't, uh, don't lie. I've done all that for my youth up. I've, I've taken care of all my human relationships. And Jesus said, have you? Then go sell everything you have and give it to those that are in need. I, don't, I can't do that. I don't know about that. Again, Jesus' command to him was in light of the sins in his heart. Apparently money, material things were his God. And I, I think this is, is so sad because, again, we see this today in much of our society because it's money-based, it's commerce-based, and we'll talk a little bit about more, more about that in just a second. But look at the man's reaction when Jesus said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, uh, and come and follow me. Verse 23, and when he heard this, look at these words. He was very sorrowful. Why? Because he was very rich. Think about that. He had so much. He had so much possessions. His life had been all about him, all about the things that he could get. He was consumed with this. This was his God. This was his purpose. This was the vision of his life. And so when he hears Jesus' teachings about the kingdom, he hears about this, these, these treasures and this, this eternity beyond this world, and he's, he's debunking the, the Pharisees and man's idea of what the kingdom of God is, thinking that the kingdom of God is something more on this earth that you could gain and, and more material things in your hand. His, his whole perspective and his whole mindset gets blown up when Jesus says, go and sell everything you have. The, the great riches that you've stored up, all of the, the life that you've built for yourself, get rid of it and follow me. And what's challenging to even me, and I think Christians today, is this. Maybe that point that we got saved, we had that type of surrender. We had that type of faith in Jesus Christ that no matter what it cost us, we, we were going to follow him. But then maybe as time goes on, and maybe it is material possessions, or maybe it's mon a, a life that we begin to live as a Christian. We, we have those things on this earth. I, I wonder if it came down to it and Jesus said, I want all of that. How many of us who say that we're Christians would say it's yours, Lord? You take my home, take, take my vehicles, take the money in my bank account. Take it all. It's yours anyways. I wonder how many Christians, I wonder how willing we would be to, to yield everything, to give everything to him. The idea in our minds and in our hearts, I think that we can even piously say, oh yeah, I would do that. I, I, I would give everything to the Lord again when it came down to it, to making that decision in actuality, I wonder if we'd be willing to do that. Even if it cost me everything, would I do that? Again, he was very sorrowful because he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? He was saying how, how difficult, an exclamation, it's very difficult for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. And he gives an illustration on how difficult it is. He says this, it's easier for a camel to go through the needle's eye 
than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's been different discussions on what this meant, that it was a certain gate at the, at the temple that was smaller, that camels had to knee, uh, kneel, kneel down and go through, but in the Greek it's talking about a literal needle, sewing needle. And so that is the picture that Jesus was giving. Uh, the, the, the people that were putting the, the fabrics together on the looms and, 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 and sewing things in that day, they would have known that the, the needle they were using, whether it was the large one or a small one, it would be seemingly impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Seemingly impossible. And so the, the, the th that thought, that illustration that Jesus just gave blows the disciples' minds. It, it blows their minds. It, they, they, they think, they're automatically thinking, well, that's impossible. That is impossible for a camel to go through a little needle's eye. There's no way that that can happen. That's the illustration that Jesus was giving about rich people making it into the kingdom of heaven. And you say, well, why is he picking on rich people? He's not picking on people that have money, specifically. He's picking on people that are pursuing money, that have made money their God, that have lots of money, just like this rich young ruler, and that have, again, completely made their lives about consuming more and gaining more. And so, again, it blew their minds to so look at what they say. They, they that heard that said... Who then can be saved? I mean, who can be saved if, 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 it's, if it's so difficult and what you're saying seemingly impossible for rich, those who have wealth, to enter into the kingdom of God, who can be saved? And who can? And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. So again, in their minds, he's thinking impossible. He's saying, I have a needle, camel going through this. So it's impossible. Nobody can be saved. The people that have riches, the people that have money, it's impossible for them to be saved. He was teaching a very important point, and that's point number two. Point number two is this. You can't enter God's kingdom with works or riches. There's nothing that you and I can do. There's nothing you and I can accumulate or buy or do. it. There's nothing that works or riches will do for us as far as gaining entrance into the kingdom of God. So having money on this earth serves us no good as far as entering God's kingdom. Now, God may have entrusted us, specifically here in America, with a certain measure of, of riches or wealth, if you will. But that's to be used for his glory, not just for us to consume it and to make it our God. Once we have him as our God, to say, okay, God, thank you for eternity. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for giving me eternal life. I'm going to set you to the side. Now I'm still a Christian, but now I'm going to go serve riches. Now I'm going to try to get everything I can get, get all the money, live the life that I want to live. That's not at all the relationship that God wanted. God wanted us to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, make him, again, the God of our life, the one that we do look to, the one that we do serve, the one that we get up every day and think about and, and want to serve and please. Versus getting up every morning and thinking about that money, thinking about that paycheck, thinking about that job, thinking about more money, thinking about what we're going to do with it, thinking about all those things. He wants us to think about him like that. Did you hear that? When we make him the Lord of our life, when he becomes the God of our life, he doesn't want us to wake up in the morning and think about all the things that we've got to do that day. And that alone. He doesn't want us to get up 
and, and, and to think about how much money we're going to try to make that week or what we're going to buy that week. Or he doesn't want us to think like that. He wants us to get up every morning and think about him and to thank him for another day that he's given us on this earth to serve him in his mission, to serve him in the kingdom of God while we're in this temporal world. Have opportunities to store up riches in heaven while we're in this temporal world. He wants us to be consumed with him, to think about this week, how many people can I reach? How many people at my job can I be an influence for the kingdom of God, not for my glory, but for his glory? How many people can I run into and, 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 and be a light, be an encouragement? He wants us to think about him and think about, remember what it says in Colossians, set your affection on things above, set your mind on things above, not on things in this earth. He wants us to think about him and heavenly things and, and serving him like that while we're having to live in this world of commerce, while we're having to, to operate by this, this world system. That's how he wants us to live. And again, there's nothing wrong. I, I need a new car. I can't, we've talked about this before. It's not about not being able to buy something or not being able to have something or not being able to buy something new or, or have something. It's not about that at all. There's nothing wrong with buying something new or having something. There's nothing wrong with that. Unless you are living for that and serving that. So there's nothing that riches and, and works can do as far as the eternal, the eternal kingdom of God. We've already seen in, in our study this great battle. It's the great battle that we have as humans with our allegiance in this area. You know, specifically when it comes down to self and even more specifically, to money. So we battle with giving God the throne when it comes down to what we want versus what he wants. And again, I want to refer back to that song that Brother Sean just sang. Even if you don't. You know, the, the, the song came from um, the, the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And... You know, they said, we know that our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we'll not bow down. Amen. It's the absolute trust in God. No matter what we go through, no matter how bad things get, if it doesn't go the way we want, we still trust God. And so this battle that we have every day of our life is that, a battle against ourself. What we want versus what God wants. And I believe on just on the other side of that coin is the battle with giving God the throne when it comes down to serving and trusting money versus serving and trusting him. We saw that Jesus was very clear. He says, you cannot serve God and money at the same time. You can't live for God and live for money. He says, no man can have two masters. You'll either hate one and love the other, or you'll cling to one and despise the other. But you cannot serve both in this world. So the system of commerce began uh, after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. They were cast out of the garden. One part of the curse was that man would have to work by the sweat of his brow to earn what he, what he would eat, what he would provide for his family. It began then. We even saw that going into their, their children's lives, right? And from that point, that's when God wanted to make sure that mankind's trust remained in him versus the things that man could work for himself. We saw that with, with Cain and Abel, right? Right off the bat, God asked a sacrifice. One sacrifice was accepted, the other was refused. 
Sin was already in the picture at that point in time. Cain despised Abel because of it, hated him, killed him. But God, at that, from the very beginning, wanted to make sure that mankind's heart stayed relying upon him and not on what he could gain, not on what he could work for. Most parts of the world today, money is the currency. It's the system that, that we operate on. There's some parts of the world that still operate with livestock and, and, and animals, stuff like that, uh, as far as their currency. They trade you know, eggs and, and chickens and goats and, and stuff like that, and that's their currency. That's how they operate. But again, in the majority of the world, money is currency. That being the case, as it was 2,000 years ago, it still is today. Mankind struggles with trusting money versus trusting God. Today, that's why it's a joy to give or to tithe for the child of God who actually gets it. To, to give to the Lord, it's not about giving to a church as far as um, a man, man's perspective. Giving and tithing is, is for the child of God who gets it is a simple act of obedience that expresses our trust in God above, listen, the greatest rival for our trust in God, and that's money. That's what tithing and giving is. It's, it's, it's saying, you know what? God doesn't need my money. Uh, the, the church doesn't need my money because the church is God's, and God could do whatever he wants with it. It's not about that. So why is it still an option? Why is it still a factor? Why is it still something that we do? Because it's, it's, a, it's an act of obedience with us saying, I don't trust money. I'm not serving money. I don't live for money. And so with the tenth being just a small portion of everything that God owns already and everything that he's given me, I can give that to God. I can give 12%, 15%. It's all his anyways. And it's a joy to do that because I'm not serving money. I'm not serving things. I'm not serving the stuff in this world. Again, for the child of God that gets it, that's what it's about. But for someone who's battling trusting money and stuff and living for this world versus trusting God and living for his kingdom, it's a battle. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad or less about yourself if that's an area that you struggle with. I'm just simply saying that's what Scripture says. That's what we see in Scripture. This man walked away sorrowful as far as entering the kingdom of God, not, not being the kingdom of God already, but entering the kingdom of God. And he couldn't do what was asked. He couldn't let go of everything and surrender everything so that he could follow Jesus Christ, trusting Jesus Christ alone. He couldn't do that. Again, I want to go back to what I said a while ago. So what does it say for us who say that we have trusted Jesus Christ for everything, and yet we are, we are so clinging to the, the things that we work for, the things that we gain ourselves? What does that say about our trust in God, our reliance in God? That, that, that this world system or the currency of this world or our affection for the things in this world is greater than God? So you can't say that about tithing. I mean, God knows my heart. We've already talked about that. He does know our heart. He does. Again, if God owns it all and has given to us all good things, our health, our freedom, I mean, the ability, the jobs that we have that do make money, education, whatever it is, all these things God has given to us, then what is whatever it is, a tenth or a twelve or whatever, to give a small portion, just a small portion of what's his anyways. 
And remember, we, that, that includes everything about us, was purchased anyways. As a child of God, we've been purchased. We're no longer our own if we're a Christian. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 says. It says, what? Know you not that you're bought with a price? You're no longer your own. You're no longer your own. Man seems to be in constant pursuit of more in this world. We all can get pulled into it of gaining more and having more. When we clearly saw that this world is soon to perish just a couple weeks ago, riches are vain. Proverbs chapter 11 verse 4 tells us, Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. The pursuit of riches is vain. Proverbs 23, 4, labor not, don't work and labor to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. He asks the question, wilt thou set thy eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle towards heaven. And so again, we have to see this, this great important point that riches, works, they don't profit anything getting into heaven. And even as Christians, we need to make sure and keep a, a close check and examination on our hearts and our lives that we don't get pulled into that system of the world and begin to serve money. Once we've got our ticket to heaven, that we don't say, okay, now I know I'm going to heaven. I, I'm going to live like this now. We'll look back in our text and we'll close. Verse 28, then Peter said, lo, we've left all to follow and follow these. So they're bewildered. You know, who can, who can be saved? You know, with God... With man, it's impossible. With God, uh, nothing's impossible. All things are possible. So Peter tells Jesus, look, look at our lives. Look at us, your disciples. We've left everything and we followed, followed you. And we've surrendered all. We've left our jobs. We've left our, our, our ability to make money and provide for our family. I mean, many people probably think that we're a bunch of uh, losers, you know, not taking care of our families. We're, we're, we're following you around. We've left everything to follow you. We're no longer pursuing the riches of this world. We're pursuing you and the riches of, of your kingdom. What about us? Jesus said unto them, Verily, truly I say unto you, this is truth. There's no man that has left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. It's, an, it's another nail in the point that he was driving in, or trying to drive in, and it's this, number three. You can fully enjoy God's kingdom only with absolute surrender. This theme of surrender has been laced throughout all of Jesus' teaching in this journey with Jesus. This idea of surrender, this thought, this, this lesson on surrender... It's all about the relationship with God. The kingdom of God was at hand in Jesus' day. It had come upon man. Those entering into it, entered into it by faith and surrender. It's the same exact way that those enter the kingdom of God today, by faith and surrender. Those who walk with God then walk the same way that we have to walk or that we get to walk with God today. And that's in the abundance of his blessings. And so this morning as I wrap this up, I want to think about some of the blessings that come along with that surrender, with that absolute surrender, even if it's, if everything, like the, the uh, if it calls for that. Now, God didn't necessarily call every single one of us to, to sell our homes and, and leave our homes and, and, and leave our families. God didn't necessarily do that. 
But at the point of salvation, we've got to be willing to, or it can't be, it can't be salvation. That's the type of faith and surrender it takes to enter the kingdom of God. That's what he's taught. But if it comes down to it, would we still have that faith? Would we still be willing to do that? To sell it all? To give it up, give all of it up? So I don't know if I could. If you, if you struggle with that thought, think about the blessings as we read through these scriptures that talk about the blessings of God now and the blessings of God to come. In John chapter 10, verse 28, and I give unto them eternal life. We could stop there and be done. I give to them eternal life. Nothing or no one can do that other than Jesus Christ. Nothing or no one can afford us the opportunity other than God himself. And he's the one that gives to us eternal life. We could stop and say there's, there's, there's no greater blessing to, to live in, in the promise now and to experience then to have eternal life versus the opposite. The opposite is eternal death in the lake of fire, burning forever in torments. So eternal life, we could stop and say, man, there's no greater blessing than knowing that I have eternal life. But he goes on, and listen, he, he, he drives this home, and they shall never perish. They'll never die. We, we understand that as a Christian. You say, well, I know people that are Christians that have died. That's just the door. That, that's just the Bible talks about it fall, falling asleep. That's, that's not the, the finality uh, of our lives as far as Christians go. They shall never perish. Neither shall, listen to this promise, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. See, here's the truth. You can't, I can't earn salvation. And if we can't earn it, if we can't do it ourselves, then we can't lose it ourselves. If, if, if God is the one that gives us to it, God's not an Indian giver. He doesn't say, well, now that you're good enough, I'll give you eternal life. And when you get bad enough, I'm going to take it away. God doesn't do that. God in his grace, in his mercy, he saves us because of our trust in him, absolute surrender to him. And when we are his, we are in his hands. And the Bible says this, neither shall any man. That includes you. That includes me. You say, well, I've done some really bad things as a Christian. There's any man, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all, greater than anything, anyone. And no man, no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Think about this. An amazing promise, an amazing blessing. If you are truly saved, and I'm not talking about a profession, I'm not talking about an emotional experience, I'm not talking about you've gone to church all your life, you're pretty sure that you're going to heaven. I'm talking about you know without a shadow of a doubt, 100%, if you were to die, you're on your way to heaven, not because of what you've done, not because of how good you've been, only because of what Jesus Christ has done and your absolute surrender to him as Savior and Lord. You know without a doubt you are, you've done that before, I've, I'm, I've been saved then this is a promise you can stand on now and it'll be for, with you for all of eternity. There's nothing you can do, nothing anyone can do to take you out of the hand of Almighty God. That's a promise. What a blessing to live this life. And we know in that grace and we know in that blessing it doesn't give us a license to sin, just as Galatians tells us, that we've not been given liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but we've been given li liberty to, by love, serve one another. So it doesn't give us license to sin in this assurance of our salvation. But furthermore, in John chapter 15, listen to what Jesus says. You are my friends, a friend of God. Think about that. We've talked about this recently. 
if God would have put all the worst things that we've done up on that screen, there wouldn't be no one left in this room. And yet in his grace and his mercy, when we become his kids, he, he clothes us in his righteousness. His blood covers us. And though we don't even deserve to look upon him, let alone say his name, let alone have a relationship with him, the blessing that comes along with having entrance into the kingdom of God is that we are friends with God. That's amazing. But he puts a qualifier on it. He says, if you do whatsoever I command you. So from this time forward, I don't call you servants. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord does, because he's completely disconnected from it. He just does it. But I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I've made known unto you. What an amazing blessing. Galatians chapter 3. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither is there bond or free, neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed. And listen to these words. And heirs according to the promise. Heirs to the kingdom of God. I don't deserve to even serve God, let alone be an heir in his kingdom. That just blows my mind. What amazing blessing that in God's amazing grace and his, and his mercy, when we get, gain entrance into the kingdom of God through absolute surrender, we become heirs of the promise that was given even to Abraham. It's amazing. Romans chapter 8, verse 16, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. Listen to this, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Amazing blessings, amazing promises, the, the, the blessings that come along in this life and the life to come. James chapter 1, blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Crowns. 2 Timothy 4, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. A crown of life to those that love him, a crown of righteousness to those that are anxiously and, and anticipating and loving the return of the Lord. What an amazing deal. What an amazing transaction. What a glorious transaction that, that has happened for us sinners. We can escape eternal judgment for what we have done because of what Jesus has done. That's a mind-blowing thought. And so we can escape that judgment for what we've done because of what he's, he's done. Not only that, we get all of the promises and all of the benefits that come along with being in right standing with God even though we've done nothing ourselves to be in right standing with God. We get all of that when we surrender ourselves to him, when we humble ourselves before him, trusting in him alone. So many people, as the musicians make their way, feel that it's not a good deal to give their life to Christ because they're going to miss out on so many things. If they give their life to Christ, well, I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. I'm not going to be able to do what I want anymore but they're blinded. See, even though these are promises that were, are written in God's Word, it takes faith and trust to, to stand on those promises. The reality is this. If we could see all of the things that he's preparing for us right now, 
in the eternity that we're going to have in his presence, there would be no hesitation for anybody to, to get saved. If God would say, to, if God would do for every person that's on the fence of getting saved or does, they're not saved, if God would just open up eternity and show them what his eternity, their eternity with him is going to be, if he would just give them a glimpse of that, everyone would get saved. Everyone would say, man, I, I want that. And the reason why is because that appeals to the flesh. Streets of gold. We read it in the Bible, but if we were able to see it. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It doesn't come, faith is not by sight. The just shall walk by faith, not sight. So that's why God doesn't do that. He's most interested in a real, sincere relationship with us. The stuff that comes from that are all the benefits. The blessings now, the blessings to come, but he's interested in, in the walk that we have with him every day. He doesn't want us to trust him just because we know we're going to get stuff one day. He doesn't want us to trust him just because we have benefits in this life right now. That's not what he wants. Listen, he wants us to trust him so that we get him. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before him. We talked about this recently. He could see beyond the shame, the hurt, the pain, everything on the cross because he saw the family of God in eternity. He wants us to trust him and to want him because we get him. We have that relationship with him for all of eternity. He is the greatest reward of all, to know him. And just as Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, look what it says. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what, sh what I shall choose, I, I don't know, because I'm, I'm straight betwixt the two. I pull between two, having the desire to depart. That's what Paul wanted to do. Why? To be with Christ which is far better. Nevertheless, to bind the flesh is more needful for you. And the last scripture is this in Philippians 3, what things were gained to me, those I count a loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Did you hear that? I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything in this world was counted lost, just to have the knowledge and relationship with Jesus. He says, for, I'm, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, here it is, that I may win Christ. The greatest prize of all, not the streets of gold, not the mansion over the hilltop, not, not the crowns, not, not any of those things, but Jesus Christ himself, the greatest prize, the greatest blessing of all. That's what should be on all of our hearts as we live this life in this world as Christians. We should be thinking every day, he's my God, what can I do for him? One day I can't wait to be with him. I can't wait for him to return. I want to win him. I want to be with him. For me to depart and be with Christ is far better. That should be on our hearts just as it was for the Apostle Paul. And he goes on and saying, and, and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, 
the righteousness which is of God by faith. Here it is, that I may know him. That I may know him. He was talking about knowing him more intimately. That I may know him more intimately in the power of his resurrection. And listen to this, in the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. This morning. And the blessings that come along with being a child of God are innumerable. There's no greater blessing than Jesus Christ himself. And I want to challenge you just as I've been challenged in this. Every day of our life, we should be getting up. The first thought on our mind should be him. The first first desire we have should be to talk with him. The, The next desire should be to serve him, to, to be that friend, to, to be that, to, to know him more. Those should be our desires. Not how much we got to do at our job or how much we're going to make or what we're going to buy next. It should be him. And if that's not, then maybe this morning you hit the altar, you pray there at your seat, and say, God, that's what I want. You've given me way more than I could ever deserve. Even just giving me eternal life, I'd never deserve it. I could never earn it, but you've given so much more. You've promised me blessings in this life and blessings in the life to come. And one day when I stand before you, I'm going to see the greatest prize of all, you. And I'll get it then. I realize that. I'll get it then. But I don't want to wait till then. I want to understand now. I'm going to get it now. I want to live as you're the greatest prize now because you are. Let's be real with God. Let's be honest with you. Maybe we say, I'm not there, but I want to be there. Or maybe you're here and you're, you're trusting riches. Maybe you're trusting yourself. Works. Um, we see very clearly there's no way to heaven with riches. There's no way to heaven with works. So if you're not sure that heaven's going to be your home, I, I want to ask you to come forward. We have a couple ministers here. Please let them just show you in God's word more of what it means to be saved. And you can decide for yourself. No one's going to force you. No one's going to make you do anything. You can hear the word of God. You can see it for yourself. And then you can make a decision. But don't leave this place without making a decision. Whether you're going to accept Christ or reject him. Because it means eternity. And so I just want to invite you uh, to respond to God's word. However he, he lays on your heart to respond. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this message. God, as it's challenged me, I pray that it's challenged all of us. God, that we would look to you, that we would trust you at all times, that even as Christians, we wouldn't go back to trusting ourselves or trusting our own abilities or trusting our own righteousness or even serving riches, serving money, serving this world. God, every day we would get up. Every day we would think about you. Every day we would turn to you. We would serve you. Your kingdom would be before us work now on this invitation. Help us respond rightly, and I pray that you're glorified through all of it. I ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.